Hello and welcome to the Taking Social Stock podcast. Taking Social Stock is a weekly podcast hosted by me, Andrew. And me, Heather. This week in episode three, we'll be discussing the criminal justice system and more specifically how it impacts people of low income and people of color more than it affects people who have more resources and how it's kind of an inequitable system. This all started with an article I found uh, in Social Work Today. It was titled, Poor People Who Pay for the Criminal Justice System, According to a Rutgers Study. And the study they're referencing was published in the Russell Sage Foundation Journal of Social Sciences. It was an article titled, Statutory Inequality, The Logics of Monetary Sanctions in State Law, written by Brittany Friedman and Mary Patello. So Brittany is a professor at Rutgers, and Mary is a professor at Northwestern. They both kind of specialize into these topics, and it's a deep dive in their research paper. But what stood out to me in the article was just kind of the basic intro that the laws in the books were designed to be equal, class-blind, and fair, but when implemented, they overwhelmingly impact people of color and people of low income, specifically because the fine systems. So we've talked about this before, Heather, uh, on our many trips shopping to Ikea or whatever, where you know, we're fortunate enough that we started out low income, we're able to be first-generation college graduates, and now have a little more resources than we did growing up. And if we have to go out and replace something like replace a nightstand or you know, buy a dresser, even if it's from Ikea, not super expensive, that we don't have to worry about it as much as we did growing up or even when we first got married. When I hit this article and I kind of saw the synopsis, I thought, wow, this is something I've, I've never really thought about, how the fine system can be really impactful to lower income people and especially people of color. We've discussed that before, but this really puts it into a new light for me. And we'll get into this in a little bit, but the amounts of fines and the types of fines went way above and beyond and are more detailed and specific than I had ever anticipated before you you picked out this article. I'm really thankful you did. I went on a bit of an adventure, an excursion, if you will, about 3.30 this morning reading through this. So I, to be real, I woke up because I think I had been scared from watching, from listening to way too many spooky podcasts lately. And uh, it's it's the almost the Halloween season, starting that early. And just couldn't go back to sleep. So started getting into all of this and found myself for several hours, basically until about started work today, was digging into all sorts of things. It makes me, this experience today really reminded me of my, one of my favorite quotes. It's a lyric by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, which is, the more I see, the less I know, which is, you know, it's like, the more I learn, the less I know. And I realize how much I have to learn, left to learn about all these different dynamics. You know, they say ignorance is bliss. Yeah, so for a minute kind of the it same is. Thing. Yeah, sometimes, at least for a second, it feels it feels better than when you start learning how difficult and complicated topics are, topics like this as well. You mentioned the, the Social Work Today article. I would for sure encourage anybody who is interested at all in the topic to spend like a minute and a half, two minutes reading it. If people, those who are interested in more of the, the academic stuff and you want to read a 20-page academic journal article, dig into this this article that you talked about that's linked in the Social Work Today synopsis. 
So a couple things that I think are really important to be aware of as we go through this dis discussion is the lens of the authors that we're getting from this. They are, I think you mentioned them, two professors. So I looked into who are these people? What what might be their backgrounds? Because it's not only their academic knowledge, but their experiences as people that are going to inform what they bring to their writing. Now, both of these uh, professors, I'll call them professors because they are, but uh, professor or doctors, Dr. Brittany Friedman and Dr. Mary Patillo. So Dr. Patillo, she teaches at Northwestern, which is, it makes sense why the article itself really digs in on some laws in Illinois as examples. Dr. Friedman, she is a professor at Rutgers, but she got her PhD at Northwestern. So she has that tie to, to Illinois as well. They're both black women, both have, they're both sociologists. Dr. Patillo focuses on African-American studies, and Dr. Friedman is an affiliate of criminal justice at Rutgers, and her research topics are prison order, monetary sanctions, black feminist theory. So they're bringing their academic background plus their experiences as black women to this, this discussion. And I think that's really important to know because uh, this is something that I became aware of just really this summer. It is important to to understand what are the limitations of the authors we read about. A lot of times there are academic authors who are white who are writing about African-American studies or topics dealing with race, which is fine, but it's important for the reader to understand what might their limitations be as white people who are looking into this topic. Like us. Like us. Exactly. <laughs> yes, absolutely. When I think about this, there are really kind of three categories that I want us to get to talk about today, and it's really looking at how are individuals being affected? How are the laws playing out on them? What does this mean about fees and stuff like that? Because on the surface, it sounds like, oh, fees, you pay a court fee here or there. What that really looks like for people, what that looks like for the states and the country, and then how those who are, are most vulnerable to, to these laws and practices. Okay. Individuals, country, and the vulnerable. We've both had our share of fines. And one thing they kind of go into is if you have a fine, it goes unpaid, well, you can get arrested. One of us has had experience with that, and it's not me. <laughs> you know, if you do a failure to yield, whatever, or a failure to signal and changing lanes, you might get a ticket, and you might get pulled over on a Sunday, and because they're slow, they take you to jail because you didn't pay that ticket. I I could be wrong, but I think that could happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? So that isn't a unique experience. So, you know, traffic tickets are not a major one that sends you to, to jail. But if you get a fine for whatever reason and it goes unpaid, well, you can get arrested. Fortunately, in our scenario, I was able to post the, the bail and get you out and paid the fine <laughs> and you were released. No big deal. Not a major issue, but there was a $200 fine or something I had to pay. And I had to be able to pull that out right then. And that was a time where $200 meant a lot more to us. If I didn't have that money, you would have been sent to county jail. <laughs> for yeah. Who knows how long? Yeah. I remember that was one of the things. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember because we, we had things to do that, that day. And I asked the, the cop, hey, how long until my husband has to come get me before I go to county? And he's like, have him come in the next couple hours. But that was something... I, I didn't understand the implications then. 
that what it meant to go to county and have to wait for, I guess maybe I still don't understand what I would have to do, but I think I would have had to wait to appear before a judge. And mm-hmm. so, so what happened is, but it was, I had a, a bench warrant that I didn't realize that I had because I forgot to pay a fine yeah. or, yeah, right. I was surprised when that happened. We felt that when we had to pay that that day, but I never had a fear that it couldn't be paid. But the idea that I could have had to go to county and wait for who knows how long before I got to see a judge because I forgot to pay a bench warrant that never made its way to me because we had moved. Mm-hmm. And well, you knew about the the ticket. Oh, I knew about the ticket, but <laughs> I for yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> you just didn't tell me about the ticket, so it didn't get I paid. I forgot. I it wasn't it was an accident. I really did because I put it up well, as because we were in the moving process. But I think that is something where that's a lot of people's story. A version of that is a lot of people's story. And I remember calling to the local county clerk and to try to figure out like, what is this? Is this this an infraction? Is it that? And they couldn't give me an answer. And it took me a while to to get even some semblance of an answer. So the whole system is frustrating Mm -hmm. and time consuming. And if we hadn't had 200 bucks, I would have been heading off to county mm-hmm. because I forgot to pay a ticket. And we would have probably had to pay more if you had to appear before a judge because then you had to pay court costs. The original ticket was probably $35. At the end of the day, it cost us time and it cost us more than double, more than quadruple the original fine, I believe. That's not unique. So a lot of times these fines, you know, any ticket you get, if you don't pay it, it'll increase. I think traffic tickets, usually it's like if you pay it, when the first window, it's this amount, then it like goes up by a certain percentage and goes up by a certain percentage. It's definitely not a unique situation. We were fortunate to be on the light side of it. But if you don't pay fines, you can also have your license revoked. They go into that a little bit here. And then now if you have to go to work and you live in an area that doesn't have good public transportation, you either can't work or you have to find a ride every time or maybe you drive without a license and then risk additional fines and additional penalties all because you didn't have the money to pay the fine and now they're taking away your ability to earn income to pay the fines. It's a cycle for individuals for sure. In the academic article, so the longer article, because I know we've talked about a couple in this, they talk about a little bit about Ferguson and how after Mike Brown's death, there was there was a lot of looking into the system, finding that there were a lot of a lot of fees being created in in Ferguson, and that is we we use Ferguson because everybody is has heard that you'd have to have lived on another planet. <laughs> Could have forgot. It's been what seven? No, or they forgot. You know what? You're right. You're it's been right. Five or something years, six, and so is the Mike Brown years. shooting, which was kind of the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. It was one of the the keystones that started that movement. Yeah, you're right. It is six years ago. So. If somebody's an adult or has even a teenager, they they've heard of it more than likely. But I should I should give some fairness in that. You're right. But they shared that as an, an example of looking into to this municipality, to this area, and seeing that people were charge a lot of fees. That was one of the the issues in that community. But that community, I, I bring that up because I think oh, a lot of people know about that community. But that isn't unique to different towns, municipalities, cities throughout the country. One of the things that you had just talked about was the 
increase in fees. And that was something that I really drew my attention in the long article, which they showed a snippet of what was shared on the House floor with a bill that a Senate bill that was trying to be passed and talking about basically how do we not like, uh, what do we do about these, these fees? Multiple people were uh, called, multiple of the, the contributors were calling people deadbeats who couldn't pay the fees. And somebody shared, Hey, you know, that if they, if they go certain amount of days, the fee increases by X percent. And then if they can't pay it, they're already behind. They can't pay it. It's going to increase even more and then even more. And there was this argument back and forth where people, some of the people really just wanted to simplify people who didn't pay fees to call them deadbeats and to oversimplify it to say, well, it's just a few, it's just a little bit of money. And that to me really screamed privilege because it was a little bit of money to them, but it wasn't a little bit of money to people who already didn't have money to pay an original fee or fine. When thinking of that, the idea of, you know, kind of mentioned our perspective and our situation of $200 being a lot to us then, it's still a lot of money to be real. Yeah. But the decision makers aren't the ones who are really dealing with these fines and fees and the ongoing system. You know, the idea of the escalation of cost doesn't matter if you're able to pay the initial bill. There is, you know, this idea that, well, they're spending all their money on other things. They can afford it if they make it important. And it goes into something they talked about in the article, this neoliberalism, which was a theory or whatever about in the 80s and 90s. We hear the term all the time today, neoliberalism, neoliberals, all this. But neoliberalism is really just this idea of personal responsibility. And that's where a lot of these fines and laws and systems come from. It's not really fair, because you would say, because we all want to be responsible for ourselves. But what $30 means to me is different from the next guy. And so those fines, while they're meant to be blind and fair, everyone could take care of themselves. It's completely unfair because $30 is whatever percentage of my income. But for someone else, they may be dealing with unemployment or in today's world, you know, they may want to be employed, but they cannot. They could be on disability. There's a million different reasons why their income could be less than their their earning potential and they're not they're not there or they're just unfortunately straddled those confinements. That whole idea of being personally responsible and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps doesn't work. Sometimes you don't have bootstraps. Yeah. I hope a lot more people are understanding that the pull yourself up by your bootstraps theory is a falsehood. It's it's not real. But I think there there's this pride in this personal responsibility of look what look what I did where, you know, going back to the people who were on the on the house floor, again oversimplifying the financial situation others were in. I don't know them or their background. So we'll say, okay, you know, best case scenario, they were all really, really hard workers and they did so much to get to where they are. But what they're not acknowledging in that conversation and what a lot of people don't acknowledge is they had a support network to help them get there. Nobody at all pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. And to your point, some people don't even have shoes. So there's nothing to pull up. 
But I think it feeds into this this idea of, like you said, ne- neoliberal policies of personal responsibility, being able to do something else, which you use the term they, right? Like it's it's to other people. Well, they can do that if they try hard enough. Look what I did. They can do this. They, they, they. And I think that has fed into the them being people who are convicted of crime. Uh, the art of one of the articles I looked at could be called users of crime, if you wanted to say something like that, is that the criminal justice system has grown more expensive. Since 1970, the prison population has has really started to, to amp up in terms of prison population about that time. And over the years, we've seen more cops, more uh, prosecutions, the prison population, like we've talked about, has increased a lot since the 70s. We can look back to one thing, which everybody's heard about, is the war on drugs, right? Where we saw a lot of, that's probably a whole other podcast, <laughs> a lot of not great things, terrible things happening That's continued, has made our prison system look the way it does right now. With all these increases, you have people who are in prison, more and more people who are in prison, you have more cops that you have to pay for, more costly, uh, what was called intensive prosecutions. So how are you going to pay for all that? That's where you get into the monetary sanctions that the article talks about. And that could include things like I never would have thought about before recently, which is like riding in cop cars, probation officers, when somebody is released from prison, they have to pay that back. DNA storage. And these are for people who are convicted of crimes, whether or not they do any time in prison as well. So that's another thing to keep in mind. They go into even the idea of before this law passed in Illinois in 2016, that the state could sue incarcerated committed persons for reimbursement expenses. And they go through a case study, I think it was of two specific people had over 157 or 157 lawsuits against them for a total of about 500,000 while they were in prison, which I guess obviously prisoners can, they could destroy property in the prison. They could assault guards. There's things that I could see that the prison incurs cost during that, but unlikely that it's that amount. And that's just crazy to me. The fact that you can sue someone who's, I I guess I kind of get it, but it's still crazy to me that you can sue someone who's in jail they did overturn that to some degree with some Senate bill in 2016, but it only marginally passed the House, which is very shocking. It's interesting that the idea is that the prisoners and that people who are arrested for crimes, not necessarily convicted even of crimes, should be responsible for the cost of the the whatever, the policing and the, um, what, what would you call it, the prison system. They want to offload all the costs from the state to the people they're convicting or arresting for those crimes it, because they're limited on their ability to tax and raise those funds. But to me, as someone who's never done any jail time or been arrested, well, you look so I, smug. I, I do, th- of course, because <laughs> only one of us here hasn't. I think, you know, it is really, it's the responsibility of everyone to cover those costs. I don't mind paying taxes mm-hmm. because for me, as a homeowner, someone like that, I want the criminal justice system to be there for criminals who are dangerous. I don't mind paying my cost for safety, pay my cost for police officers who respond whenever I was in an auto accident a couple years ago. 
I don't mind paying that cost. Uh, that's a benefit to me that that I should be paying for. The idea that the prisoners and people, you know, should be fined continually to cover those costs is a bit absurd because it benefits the wealthy the most. They have the most assets. They have the most resources that can be pilfered, that could be damaged. You know, if you own, I think my friend's uncle owns a lot of the buildings in a small rural town. Well, he's the one who stands to lose the most if there is criminal activity in the town. The businesses he leases space to will have less customers to earn less revenue so he can charge less rent. So he stands to lose the most by criminal, actual criminal activity. So it makes sense for him to pay the most to have a police force and to have to get people off the street who are actually causing harm, not just get people off the street just because they forgot a parking ticket. Yeah. One of the things you said was you were surprised that it barely passed the house. I don't think we should be surprised because it it goes back to the idea of othering people. It's a bipartisan kind of thing, right? The idea of personal responsibility. What does that mean? It might look a little different between people of ideologies, but it doesn't surprise me that it was marginally passed because I don't think that the way that you're thinking and showing about it, like, I don't mind paying into that for for whatever re- the reason that you shared. I, I understand that. I don't know how many people think, I think, it, oh, I should say, I think a lot of people think about that, but I think it is more comfortable to say they about people. Mm-hmm. They're there because they did something bad. They didn't take personal responsibility. They're lazy. What even if those words aren't used, it's the implication. They I'm better than them. That could they're be a me. drug user. They yeah. yes, which the, is oh go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, which can also be an offshoot of something we haven't talked about yet, which is mental health treatment. There's a lot of reasons why someone else might be a drug user, but yeah. go ahead. Well, it was actually right in line with that. One of the other things that people sometimes have to pay for in terms of those, excuse me, monetary sanctions are things like drug treatment and domestic violence counseling. So they're paying to have to try to become contributing citizens. You know, when we think about, we'll, we'll hone in on drug treatment for what, for what you brought up. So many contributing factors where people are self-medicating because, again, that could be a whole other discussion where people can't afford the types of medications they need, so they self-medicate. There are a lot of issues that can arise with that. So if we say that they need to get, we need to make sure that they have access to help, but they don't have the financial means to get drug treatment so they can begin to make a consistent income, we're setting them up to, to continue in that cycle of needing to rely on drugs and the drug treatment to not take and for them to get further and further in debt over time. I should also mention, I, I forgot this part, but the Republican governor at the time, Bruce Rauner, vetoed that Senate bill once it passed. So, oh. so I guess it never actually went into law, so they still can sue prisoners. Maybe they've updated it since, but yeah, he, was, he vetoed it. So. There you go. Sorry. Right, so that's kind of the the country, right? Like, is that what you were thinking in that area, or that do you have some other notes? The individuals, but I can go kind of bullet points on the country okay. when we think about like 
And I talk contrary, bigger, bigger picture than thinking about how are these individuals impacted through like drug treatment and stuff like that. So Pew Research, prison rates as of 2018, we'll kind of go rapid fire with this. So per capita, there were 268 people per 100,000 white people in prison. For Hispanics, it was 797 people per 100,000. Wait, what was the what was the first stat? So white white people 268 per 100,000. Okay, per 100,000. Gotcha. Yeah. Hispanics 797 per 100,000. Blacks 1,134 per 100,000. And they uh, were referencing a U.S. Department of Justice number. So that's of a 20, 2018, and I think that's also something else where we're seeing people disproportionately affected because I, I also think that, um, you know, I've had conversations with people where sometimes we see raw numbers. Well, X amount of people are in prison where somebody might say, well, more, more, you know, I'm making this up as I'm, I'm making this up. More white people are arrested for X than black people. But we have to help people say, well, maybe by raw number, but you have to understand that there, by percentage, there are a lot more white people in the U.S. than black people. So we have to look at it per like what we're talking about, 100,000 mm-hmm. here to get a really good look and accurate look of how many people are in the system. couple other things here. In 2017, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights said that since 2010, 47 states have increased civil and criminal fees. So this article that we were honing in on today, it's part of the bigger study. It's like a five-year study and a fi- no, yeah, five-year study with multiple partners and it spans eight, eight states. So we're going to see at some point a bigger project where this article is part of that project. They hone in on the laws. And then the other things that really stuck out to me were thinking about what does it look like to be somebody who's slammed with all these fees, who's in the prison system, who's already at a disadvantage financially to pay for them? What might some other barriers be? So I looked into what is educational attainment among the prison population. It's a little bit old, but it's what I found. I don't know. So the numbers could be a little bit off. But a 2011 study said that 40% of inmates nationwide don't have a high school diploma. So they get out of jail or prison. Good luck finding any sort of job that's going to pay a meaningful wage now that you have a felony more than likely on your record and you have to pay back these fees and try to pay for maybe an apartment or whatever else there might be. That is, you mentioned something earlier where people, a lot of people are underemployed. So they might have two or three jobs, but even then, it's really hard to make a, a living where they can afford an apartment. And then finally, this took me a while to find. And I think this is something that I for sure want to know more about. The Prison Policy Initiative, they shared a 2003 study from the Department of Educational. I'm sorry, Department of Education. They conducted a national assessment of adult literacy survey. That was the first one since 1992, so it doesn't seem like they happen all that much. But at that time in the 2003 study, they surveyed 18,000 people who were not in prison and then about 1,200 people who were incarcerated in federal and state prison. And here's what they found out, which is the people who were 
imprisoned were much more likely to be either below basic or basic on the literacy scale, meaning that they had kind of a working knowledge. Um, they could ingest maybe news stories, instructions, job applications, maps, uh, order forms, bouncing a checkbook, how to, how to sh- create or calculate a tip. Where if you have people who have low educational attainment, low reading abilities, by the way, reading abilities, literacy rates, that is not a look at the person's intelligence level at all. It's just saying that when they get out of prison or jail and they can't get a job, their reading level is below basic. How in the world do we expect them to be in a position to to pay the fees that we're they're continually charged with. And that circles back to a point I meant to make earlier. When you're leveling all these fees and fines against the offenders who couldn't pay them to begin with as a way to fund your systems, it's ultimately a failing plan, right? If they can't pay it to begin with, they're not going to be able to pay it down the road. Leveling lawsuits of hundreds of thousands of dollars against former or people who are currently incarcerated their likelihood of being able to pay that once they're released is virtually none. So they're going to wage garnish, which is going to tell these people... If they can get a job. If they can get a job, but it's going to tell them that they don't even want to seek straightforward employment. They're going to be more prone to seek jobs that pay under the table or, you know, something like that. It doesn't aid the recovery of these funds that the whole purpose of the fines was to determine. It's an ultimately failed, flawed system. It doesn't make sense to try to seek money from someone who can't pay you to begin with that's why you know no no gambling establishment's going to let you if you don't pay your what you owe them to let you keep borrowing money to gamble because well they know you're going to continue to lose so why would they give you more money to lose that you can't repay a lot of people may not visit casinos or never take out markers i i don't i think it's silly but that's that's the same idea you know casinos are smart they know how to make money and the government for some reason, doesn't necessarily understand how to make money, which is weird. That's one of their main main jobs is to make money and redistribute it. As you say that, I want to be able to speak to that more. So I'll be looking into talking with you more about that in the future. But I think the the kind of one of the final things I want to share on this is that 80% of people who are criminal defendants, they're classified as having financial needs. And this was, it's a little bit, again, of an old study. I'm looking into the recent article that we read. So some of these these topics aren't assessed all that often, it appears either. You know, 20 years is kind of a a long wait, but it's what we got right now. 80% of people qualify for public defender. I looked at the American Bar Association and found out, like, what does that mean to qualify for a public defender? You have to have 125% of poverty guidelines by household size. What that breaks down to when we look at the the continental U.S. is if you're a single person, single person household, you have to make $15,613 or less to qualify for a public, public defender. If you're a family of four, so you and three other people in your household, your household can make up to $32,188. If you go over that, then you don't qualify for a public defender. A family of four, that's incredibly difficult to live on $32,000 today. So saying that you have to be in serious need to get access to a public defender, even when you get one, 
you could still be facing looking down the barrel of fines and fees. And they can vary depending on if you're charged with a felony, a misdemeanor. The Brennan Center, it's a nonpartisan law and policy institute. They said that almost all states are pay to stay. They have an interactive map, map, which was really cool to look at to see what do people have to, what are people having to pay for? Um, so again, almost all states are pay to stay and only one state in DC, they had, you clicked on it and they just don't have data available. So that's where those two outliers are. And then in terms of what do people have to pay to stay, pay to stay in jail for? It could be a public defender that they clearly can't afford based on their income levels, paying for room and board in some places. Um, it could be in Florida and Wisconsin. If a prisoner dies and they have outstanding fees, they can go after their families to get those paid off. And then just a couple of random things is some places have where they have to pay for their clothes. They have to pay uh, reimburse for their medical care that they receive, including, again, psychological and psychiatric. So, People, but they get to choose their provider, right? They can negotiate those costs. <laughs> yeah, right in the <laughs> right in the jail. Uh, but yeah, I think that this is where this article um, made it a lot more complex to me. I already did have an understanding that it was complex, but some of the things that I read today were shocking. And again, that flea uh, from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The more I see, the less I know. I think I am glad you picked this article. Good. Well, I think uh, we went a little over today, but it's a pretty deep topic. That will do it for episode three. If you have any questions or comments, please email them to us at takingsocialstock at gmail.com. And otherwise, we will see you again next week.